be deemed presumptuous on the part of a man of humble and obscure condition to attempt to discuss and direct the government of princes. For in the same way that landscape painters station themselves in the valleys in order to draw mountains or high ground, and ascend an eminence in order to get a good view of the plains, so it's necessary to be a prince to know thoroughly the nature of the people, and one of the populace to know the nature of princes. May I trust, therefore, that your Highness will accept this little gift in the spirit in which it is offered. And if your Highness will deign to peruse it, you will recognize in it my ardent desire that you may attain to that grandeur which fortune and your own merits presage for you. And should your Highness gaze down from the summit of your lofty position towards this humble spot, you will recognize the great and unmerited sufferings inflicted on me by a cruel fate. Chapter 1 The Various Kinds of Government and the Ways by Which They Are Established All states and dominions which hold or have held sway over mankind are either republics or monarchies. Monarchies are either hereditary, in which the rulers have been for many years of the same family, or else they are of recent foundation. The newly founded ones are either entirely new, as was Milan to Francesco Sforza, or else they are, as it were, new members grafted on to the hereditary possessions of the prince that annexes them, as is the kingdom of Naples to the king of Spain. The dominions thus acquired have either been previously accustomed to the rule of another prince, or else have been free states, and they are annexed either by force of arms of the prince himself or of others, or else fall to him by good fortune or special ability. Chapter 2 Of Hereditary Monarchies I will not here speak of republics, having already treated of them fully in another place. I will deal only with monarchies and will discuss how the various kinds described above can be governed and maintained. In the first place, the difficulty of maintaining hereditary states accustomed to a reigning family is far less than in new monarchies, for it's sufficient not to transgress ancestral usages and to adapt oneself to unforeseen circumstances. In this way, such a prince, if of ordinary assiduity, will always be able to maintain his position, unless some very exceptional and excessive force deprives him of it. And even if he be thus deprived, on the slightest mischance happening to the new occupier, he will be able to regain it. We have in Italy the example of the Duke of Ferrara, who was able to withstand the assaults of the Venetians in 1484 and of Pope Julius in 1510 for no other reason than because of the antiquity of his family in that dominion. Inasmuch as the legitimate prince has less cause and less necessity to give offense, it's only natural that he should be more loved. And if no extraordinary vices make him hated, it's only reasonable for his subjects to be naturally attached to him, the memories and causes of innovations being forgotten in the long period over which his rule has extended. Whereas, one change always leaves the way prepared for the introduction of another. Chapter 3 Of Mixed Monarchies But it is in the new monarchy that difficulties really exist. 
First, if it's not entirely new, but a member, as it were, of a mixed state, its disorders spring at first from a natural difficulty which exists in all new dominions, because men change masters willingly, hoping to better themselves. And this belief makes them take arms against their rulers, in which they are deceived, as experience later proves that they have gone from bad to worse. This is the result of another very natural cause, which is the inevitable harm inflicted on those over whom the prince obtains dominion, both by his soldiers and by an infinite number of other injuries caused by his occupation. Thus you find enemies in all those whom you have injured by occupying that dominion, and you can't maintain the friendship of those who have helped you to obtain this possession, as you will not be able to fulfill their expectations nor can you use strong measures with them, being under an obligation to them. For which reason, however strong your armies may be, you'll always need the favor of the inhabitants to take possession of a province. It was from these causes that Louis Twelfth of France, though able to occupy Milan without trouble, immediately lost it, and the forces of Ludovico alone were sufficient to take it from him the first time. For the inhabitants who had willingly opened their gates to him, finding themselves deluded in the hopes they had cherished, and not obtaining those benefits they had anticipated, couldn't bear the vexatious rule of their new prince. It's indeed true that after reconquering rebel territories, they are not so easily lost again. For the ruler is now, by the fact of the rebellion, less averse to secure his position by punishing offenders, unmasking suspects, and strengthening himself in weak places. So that, although the mere appearance of such a person as Duke Ludovico on the frontier was sufficient to cause France to lose Milan the first time, to make her lose her grip of it the second time was only possible when all the world was against her, and after her armies had been defeated and driven out of Italy, which was the result of the causes above mentioned. Nevertheless, it was taken from her both the first and the second time. The general causes of the first loss have already been discussed. It remains now to be seen what were the causes of the second loss, and by what means France could have avoided it, or what measures might have been taken by another ruler in that position, which were not taken by the King of France. Be it observed, therefore, that those states which on annexation are united to a previously existing state may or may not be of the same nationality and language. If they are, it's very easy to hold them, especially if they're not accustomed to freedom. And to possess them securely, it suffices that the family of the princes which formerly governed them be extinct. For the rest, their old condition not being disturbed, and there being no dissimilarity of customs, the people settle down quietly under their new rulers, as is seen in the case of Burgundy, Brittany, Gascony, and Normandy, which have been so long united to France. And although there may be some slight differences of language, the customs of the people are nevertheless similar, and they can get along well together. Whoever obtains possession of such territories and wishes to retain them must bear in mind two things. The one, that the blood of their old rulers be extinct. The other, to make no alteration either in their laws or in their taxes. In this way, they'll in a very short space of time become united with their old possessions and form one state. But when dominions are acquired in a province differing in language, laws, and customs, 
the difficulties to be overcome are great, and it requires good fortune as well as great industry to retain them. One of the best and most certain means of doing so would be for the new ruler to take up his residence there. This would render possession more secure and durable, and it is what the Turk has done in Greece. In spite of all the other measures taken by him to hold that state, it wouldn't have been possible to retain it had he not gone to live there. Being on the spot, disorders can be seen as they arise, and can quickly be remedied. But living at a distance, they are only heard of when they get beyond remedy. Besides which, the province is not despoiled by your officials, the subjects being able to obtain satisfaction by direct recourse to their prince. And wishing to be loyal, they have more reason to love him. And should they be otherwise inclined, they'll have greater cause to fear him. Any external power who wishes to assail that state will be less disposed to do so. So that as long as he resides there, he'll be very hard to dispossess. The other and better remedy is to plant colonies in one or two of those places which form, as it were, the keys of the land. For it's necessary either to do this or to maintain a large force of armed men. The colonies will cost the prince little. With little or no expense on his part, he can send and maintain them. He only injures those whose lands and houses are taken to give to the new inhabitants, and these form but a small proportion of the state, and those who are injured, remaining poor and scattered, can never do any harm to him. And all the others are, on the one hand, not injured and therefore easily pacified, and on the other are fearful of offending, lest they should be treated like those who have been dispossessed. To conclude, these colonies cost nothing, are more faithful, and give less offense and the injured parties, being poor and scattered, are unable to do mischief, as I've shown. For it must be noted that men must either be caressed or else annihilated. They'll revenge themselves for small injuries, but cannot do so for great ones. The injury, therefore, that we do to a man must be such that we need not fear his vengeance. But by maintaining a garrison instead of colonists, one will spend much more and consume all the revenues of that state in guarding it, so that the acquisition will result in a loss, besides giving much greater offense, since it injures everyone in that state with the quartering of the army on it, which being an inconvenience felt by all, everyone becomes an enemy. And these are enemies which can do mischief, as though beaten they remain in their own homes. In every way, therefore, a garrison is as useless as colonies are useful. Further, the ruler of a foreign province, as described, should make himself the leader and defender of his less powerful neighbors, and endeavor to weaken the stronger ones, and take care that they're not invaded by some foreigner not less powerful than himself. And it will always be the case that he'll be invited to intervene at the request of those who are discontented, either through ambition or fear, as was seen when the Aetolians invited the Romans into Greece. And in whatever province they entered, it was always at the request of the inhabitants. And the rule is that when a powerful foreigner enters a province, all the less powerful inhabitants become his adherents, moved by the envy they bear to those ruling over them. So much so that with regard to these minor potentates, he has no trouble whatever in winning them over, for they willingly join forces with the state that he has acquired. He has merely to be careful that they don't assume too much power and authority, 
and he can easily with his own forces in their favor put down those that are powerful and remain in everything arbiter of that province. And he who doesn't govern well in this way will soon lose what he has acquired, and while he holds it will meet with infinite difficulty and trouble. The Romans in the provinces they took always followed this policy. They established colonies, inveigled the less powerful without increasing their strength, put down the most powerful, and didn't allow foreign rulers to obtain influence in them. I'll adduce the province of Greece as a sole example. They made friends with the Achaeans and the Aetolians. The kingdom of Macedonia was cast down, and Antiochus driven out. Nor did they allow the merits of the Achaeans or the Aetolians to gain them any increase in territory. Nor did the persuasions of Philip induce them to befriend him without reducing his influence. Nor could the power of Antiochus make them consent to allow him to hold any state in that province. For the Romans did in these cases what all wise princes should do, who consider not only present but also future discords, and diligently guard against them. For being foreseen, they can easily be remedied. But if one waits till they are at hand, the medicine is no longer in time, as the malady has become incurable. It happening with this, as with those hectic fevers, as doctors say, which at their beginning are easy to cure, but difficult to recognize, but in course of time, when they have not at first been recognized and treated, become easy to recognize and difficult to cure. Thus it happens in matters of state. For knowing afar off, which it is only given to a prudent man to do, the evils that are brewing, they are easily cured. But when for want of such knowledge they are allowed to grow so that everyone can recognize them, there's no longer any remedy to be found. Therefore the Romans, observing disorders while yet remote, were always able to find a remedy, and never allowed them to increase in order to avoid a war. For they knew that war is not to be avoided, and can be deferred only to the advantage of the other side. They therefore declared war against Philip and Antiochus in Greece, so as not to have to fight with them in Italy, though they might at the time have avoided either. This they didn't choose to do, never caring to do that which is now every day to be heard in the mouths of our wise men, namely to enjoy the advantages of delay, but preferring to trust their own virtue and prudence. For time brings with it all things, and may produce indifferently either good or evil. But let's return to France and examine whether she did any of these things. And I will speak not of Charles, but...